0: Your host Doug Berg, and welcome to Berg's Brain, a storytelling comedy show that will hopefully make you laugh, make you think, and make you want more. On this episode, I'll cover topics from kosher salt to anti Semitic clothing accessories to blowing the shofar to famous Greek author Homer to allegedly stolen cucumbers and many, many more. So jump aboard the train, get a little insane, getting inside Berg's Brain. This episode of Berg's Brain is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Slapstick, and their newest product, Yiddish kites. By way of education, the term Yiddish kite refers to anything and all things Yiddish or Jewish. So, the brilliant minds at Slapstick drew upon this pun and came up with a perfect name for a toy consisting of a light frame with thin material stretched over it, flown in the wind at the end of a long string. Why of course, a Yiddish kite and Slapstick has so many Yiddish kites to choose from. There's the Cavellin Magellan, the Chai, the Tzitzi Fly, the Schnorer Sorer, the Flyam Lachayum, the Up Up Unoy Vey, the Who Needs Ben Franklin when you have Ben Gurion, the is a Kite, and for our non-Jewish customers, the Pigs Might Fly Kite, and for our golfing enthusiasts, the Tom Kite. And each kite is hand-sewn in Haifa. All strings are made from recycled Talasitzi, and the K in kite is embossed in a hand-stitched circle, guaranteeing each high flyer is 100% kosher. So, if you're struggling, grounded, unable to reach a new height, run to the store and Shmaya Yiddishakite. Play us away, Peapod. <laughs> So, I grew up the youngest of three boys in a conservative Jewish family. For those of you not familiar with Judaism, conservatism isn't a political bent. It's one of the three Jewish movements and ways to practice Judaism. The first and most intense is Orthodox. Orthodox Jews adhere to strict kosher diets, dress in all black, women wear dresses down to the ankle, men have bushy dark beards, wispy braided sideburns called payas, and if living in New York where many do... They often work in the diamond business, metalsmithing, gem-setting, brokering, and selling. And this rather exclusive and unique relationship with the diamond industry goes way back to the 15th century, when European Jews were given limited choices in occupation. See, Jews were prohibited from buying land, engaging in agricultural practices, and with the church condemning the handling of goods and money, working in the banking or diamond industries were a few of the options available to the Jewish people. And clearly, this condemning of handling goods or money was a church-driven Christian decision, as no rabbi in his right mind would have condemned his flock for handling money or selling diamonds. Hey, Pope Paul, or Pope John, or Pope John Paul, or Pope John Paul, you guys must have worn that huge, heavy, embroidered hat a bit too long, injuring your brain, because they're diamonds, schmucks, and you don't want your followers selling them? These shiny gems may have had a Christian beginning as a Christmas gift lump of coal. But now that coal has hardened and transformed into the most precious, most valuable, most demanded jewel on the planet. And you want your people to pass? You only want the Jews to sell them? Jesus Christ, what are you, sugar? Almost makes the anti-Semitism bullshit prohibitions and all the other professions palatable. You guys get truck driving and farming. We get banking and diamonds. No wonder every non-Jew fucking hates us. Nice work, your holinesses. And in terms of the banking thing... Kind of ironic that Jews have been the group allowed to run the banking business and the little pictures of these wealthy Jewish bankers were taught the value of money by saving it in a piggy bank. And animal Jews can't eat because the swilling swine's not kosher. Hmm, that's got to give God a slight chuckle. And look, I'm not an intense Jew. Don't go to temple. Never been to Israel. Married a non-Jew and boy did that take a good 10 years for my mom to accept. I mean, we do an occasional Hanukkah mostly for the kids, but not every year. As eight days of gifts is, it's just too long. And once we had kids, we started getting a Christmas tree every year that we always steal from the local tree lot, not because we're cheap or insensitive to the tree lot people. It's just one rather simple and rewarding way to get back at Christians for thousands of years of Jewish persecution. And while a mixed marriage can have its challenges, marrying a Christian did come in handy a while back. See, the first house we purchased was high up on a remote mountain road. Back in 2002, we had a series of these devastating winter storms in the San Francisco Bay Area, and power was knocked out across the region. For a day, maybe two, you know, loss of power is no big deal. It's kind of fun, kind of like you're camping. But by day three, with no heat, the food in the fridge rotting, and two young toddlers incessantly complaining, you want to kill somebody. And every day, we'd call PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, our local power provider, and get their hotline. And they give us a recorded update saying they're aware of the outage and power should be on in the next 6 to 12 hours. Well, a few more days go by and the 6 to 12 hour time frame is now into day 6 without power. And the reason for this is that our neighborhood up on the mountain had like 10 or 12 houses when other parts of the Bay Area had thousands of people without power. So they got priority, which I could understand. But not for six damn days. To put it into perspective, God, if you believe in a higher power, created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Look, I get God's the Almighty, the Supreme Being, the Creator, the King of Kings, so he or she or it has a lot of power and can perform a lot of miracles. But God supposedly did the whole world in six days, and in the same amount of time, PGE can't get her goddamn lights back on? So, the morning of day seven, a day of rest for God, but not us freezing our asses off in a house without power, my lovely bride had had enough, and from work, she called the local CBS TV station and told them her story. She then called me and asked if I could meet the reporter at the house in ten minutes. I said, hell yeah, send them up. So... 10 to 15 minutes later, a news truck drives up, and at this point, it's raining cats and dogs and other assorted domesticated house pets as the heavens have opened up and it's dumping. I grab an umbrella, meet the reporter and cameraman on the car deck, and she starts interviewing me right then and there. Well, after a few soaking wet minutes, we finally head into the house. She has the cameraman take a few dramatic shots of rotting food in the fridge, Coleman stoves and lanterns, the thermostat registering our house temperature at a teeth shattering 41 degrees, and she continues the interview with her final question of, what's been the hardest thing to do with over the last six days? Well, I gather my thoughts, not completely sure what to say, when I glanced over at the corner of the living room and spied her sad Christmas tree with no lights aglow. I turned back to the camera and said, we can take a lot. And we understand this is a major storm, impacting thousands and thousands of people and customers. But what makes this so hard, so frustrating, so sad, is that our two young kids, our families, and the families up here on the mountain, well, we don't have a wonderfully lit up Christmas tree. And, well, what's Christmas without that? Well, that was a wrap. The reporter and cameraman left, and they told me they'd do their best to get the story on tonight's evening news. So a little before 5, we headed over to a friend's house that had power, and damn, if 5 o'clock rolled around and Channel 5 News comes on and the anchor looks right in the camera and says, the Bay Area has been rocked by torrential rain for days, and while many of our viewers have had their power restored, there's a small group of families that have been stranded without power for six days. So let's go to Anna Rodriguez reporting live in Mill Valley. And damn if they don't cut to me at my house and run a three-minute story with the final kicker about the unlit Christmas tree. So, after the broadcast, some dinner, and drinks, we headed home and went to sleep that night. Still no power. First thing in the morning of day seven, I told my wife, I'm leaving here and I'm going to drive around until I find a goddamn PG&E truck or car or something with a PG&E logo on it and let them know we're still without power. So... I jump in my car, drive down the road, and in less than a minute, I see parked over on the left side of the road a convoy of six or seven big blue PG&E trucks. So I pull over quickly, jump out of my car, and run over to the first truck. The guy rolls down his window and I say, Oh my God, I don't know if you guys are aware, but there's a number of families stranded without power just up the mountain. If there's any way you could help us, we would be so appreciative. Well, the guy takes a drag of a cig, blows out a thick stream of smoke, and says, Yeah, funny, that's just where we're headed as some motherfucking asshole got on the news last night and ripped us a new one for not keeping his damn Christmas tree lit for little Johnny and little Cindy, so we're getting that asshole's lights on pronto, tonto. Well, luckily, either the guy didn't see the story, or he didn't recognize me, as I slowly angled away and nonchalantly covered one side of my face with my left hand and said, What kind of douchebag jerk-off would do something like that with all that you're doing for this community? God, that pisses me off. Well, if you need any help getting to the area, let me know. Yeah, thanks, pal, he said. But we know exactly where the problem is, and you and your neighbors, even asshole Andy, will have your power back on before lunch. And I replied, God bless you, sir. You guys are the best. Merry Christmas, as I slunk away back to my car and got the fuck out of there as fast as possible so he and the others in the crew didn't realize I was asshole Andy. So, true to the guy's word, the neighborhood's power was restored just before noon, and being a titan in small community, well, I became kind of a mini-cult hero for fighting the man and getting pg to get us back online. And remember, this was back in 2002, when all we had were VCRs and VHS tapes. And that's what our friends used to record the news spot. The next night, with everyone's power restored, the happy neighborhood gathered at our house to watch the segment. And well, let's just say, I didn't have to buy alcohol for a good six months with all the beer, wine, and booze the appreciative neighbor showered on, asshole Andy. And while we watched the video a few times, and I made a few copies to send to my brothers and friends, I could never show it to my parents. To this day, some 20 years or so later, they've never seen or heard the story. Reason being, if my conservative Jewish parents saw the video of their youngest son on TV putting to a Christmas tree in his house and saying, What made this power outage so hard, so sad, was that my family, especially their two grandchildren, were without a beautifully lit up Christmas tree, and what's Christmas without that? Well, let's just say there's a high probability I'd have been disowned, cut out of the will, and most likely been forced to find a local seamstress to resow the foreskin back on my circumcised penis. So, while this Christmas tree story provides solid evidence that I'm not a practicing Jew, I am a Jew, and I know of our persecuted history. And it's been a hell of a history. And for what? Back in the old days, B.C., before Christ... You know, the original Jew for Jesus. Jews were kicked out of Egypt, then Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. After Christ came along and that whole immaculate conception nailed to the cross, I was a Jew, now I'm a Christian David Copperfield switcheroo, Jews have been expelled from over 100 countries, including Germany and that little Holocaust thing that quite a few anti-Semitic a-holes don't believe happened. And in addition to these one-way getaway sojourns, knee expulsions... We've been burned at the stake, slaughtered, and been at the fashion whim of trendy, Jew-hating designers helping identify our ever-shrinking and decimated Jewish population, as non-Jews really love dressing us up so the rest of the world can clearly delineate who the Jews are. As far back as 1215, Romans forced us to wear a badge of shame. The English accessorized us with blue badges in 1218. Germans made us wear pointed dunce caps in 1264. After the 1264 dunce cap, in 1267, the Austrians, not particularly well known for their haute couture, the Viennese built upon the de rigueur of the Germans, put in dunce caps and had Jews cover up with yarmulkes with horned hats. Then the badge of shame, this one red and green, returned to fashion in Poland in 1279. And of course it would be the Polish who would pin a red and green badge on a Jew, with red and green being the two main colors of Christmas, you dumbasses! And last, but certainly not least, here come the Germans again for a round two double dip. As who can forget the trendy yellow star of David combined with the branded number tattoo that the chic, natty Nazis designed for us during Hitler's Holocaust. The yellow star was bad, but can you imagine being branded with a number? And the thing about the branded number tattoo? It's against the practice for Jews to mark or desecrate their bodies, including tattoos and the penalty for this marked-up tatted Jew is that they can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Although, fortunately, an exception was made for forcibly banded and tattooed concentration camp Jews so they could be buried in Jewish cemeteries. And in the last 30 years, another marking and desecration exception was made. This one for all the Jews who've undergone plastic surgery so they too could be buried without shame in Jewish cemeteries. So... When you take into consideration all these colorful red, blue, and yellow badges so many anti-Semitic fuckers have used to identify and designate Jews throughout history, no wonder Orthodox Jews choose, and as the chosen people, they're pretty good at choosing. Orthodox Jews choose to avoid the primary colors, red, blue, and yellow, and choose to follow the depressing fashion stylings of self-deprecating comedian Richard Lewis and dress in all black. And in terms of the Jewish Sabbath, While most Jews embrace the Sabbath, Orthodox Jews take the idea of resting on the Sabbath very seriously. See, on the Jewish Sabbath, all Jews are prohibited from doing any of the 39 Melachot, meaning work or activities. But only the Orthodox follow these to the letter of the law. So, for the Orthodox Jews, from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown no plowing reaping cutting bundling threshing winnowing sorting grinding sifting kneading baking cooking shearing whitening bleaching combing dyeing as in clothing not actual dying dying cuz trust me a lot of Jews die on Shabbat and the list goes on no spinning stretching weaving unweaving tying untying ripping trapping slaughtering skinning salting although you'd think with kosher salt we'd use could salt till our blood pressure hits 300 And wrapping up the list of Shabbat no-nos, no tracing, scraping, building, demolishing, extinguishing, kindling, carrying, finishing, and my two favorites, no writing of two or more letters and no erasing of two or more letters. So I guess it's okay to start a sentence with the letter and word I, as in, I don't know why anyone follows this Mishuga practice, and it's okay to erase the word I, but you throw in a second letter like a T to spell the two-letter word it then you realize you broke the law with that second letter, and now you need to erase the T, but that's breaking law. Oy vey, Smir. Well, based upon the extremely limited number of letter-containing words a Jew can write or erase on the Sabbath, you can bet there aren't a lot of New York Times crossword puzzles getting done in Brooklyn, Miami, or Tel Aviv on a Saturday. And with no cooking, no driving, no electronics, a trip to Best Buy and a Cadillac to buy a stove is also highly unlikely on an Orthodox Shabbat. And back to kosher salt for a sec. Notice how Jews are very limited with their spices. Got that kosher salt, but not much else. You'd think with kosher salt, kosher pepper would go hand in hand. But in all my years, never seen or heard of kosher pepper. can just see a conversation between a young Orthodox son working his way up the family business of his kosher salt-selling father. So, Papa, the kosher salt thing's killing it. Sales are up across all demographics, including non-Jews, which is fantastic. So maybe we expand, branch out, and start selling kosher pepper? And of course, the elderly, cranky, stubborn father snaps. Kosher pepper? What are you, my sugar? We do kosher salt. We stay with kosher salt. We stick with kosher salt. We are not expanding to goddamn pepper and the other goddamn focaccia spices. What's next, Schmandrick? Kosher turmeric? So, no kosher pepper, but I did hear the world's leading kosher salt producing company, Israel-based David's Kosher Salt, recently expanded its consumer base by winning the salt contract with the Manhattan Snowplow Division to use their kosher salt to melt ice on the roads next winter. Mazel tov, David's! Although I also read that the deal almost fell through when Brooklyn's large and powerful Hasidic community demanded every snowplow have a mezuzah bolted to the driver's cage, but thank God cooler heads prevailed and they compromised. No mezuzah requirement, as long as every driver wears a talus and leaves their blinker on while he or she sprays the rose with kosher salt. Now, in addition to the intense religious devotion and traditions, Orthodox Jews also tend to distinguish themselves from other Jewish sects as they have this distinct body odor, a combination of BO, chopped liver gone bad, and musty decaying prayer books. It's such a distinctive smell that Christian Dior is now expanding its Jennifer Lawrence-promoted Joy line of perfume to target a middle-aged Orthodox Meshuggah Manhattan diamond dealer demographic with, oi, the fragrance of nearly 6,000 years of guilt and suffering. Now, at the other end of the spectrum of practicing Jew are the Reformed. Reformed is a liberal strand of Judaism characterized by less observance of strict Jewish law, a willingness to embrace greater openness to external influences and more progressive values than the strict orthodox. Reformed Jews have moved away from the traditional black suits, black hats, black beards, no driving or electronics on Shabbos for a more casual and secular approach donning jeans and sweaters as their temple outfit, cruising to services in a Tesla, and they have no qualms texting the rabbi during Haftorah readings. The Reformed rabbi, often a woman, which is fantastic, Leads her congregation flanked by an ever present over enthusiastic guitar playing teenager, the kind wearing a tie dye yarmulke, and a Jehovah spelled backwards as a good time t shirt. And the sermons, unlike the dark, depressing, heavy orthodox ones about original sin, dangerous Palestinians or why coveting thy neighbor's wife is fraught with consequences, reform sermons target helicopter parents, overscheduled children or the best wine pairing for Kanisha's. And while Orthodox Jews fell when they slept to see Barbara, as in Streisand, perform at the Hollywood Bowl, Reformed Jews embraced the mosh pit at Beastie Boy concerts, a group composed of three nice, rapping, and I don't mean Christmas-rapping, Jewish boys. Another musically-related distinction between Orthodox and Reformed is in how they approached certain traditional songs and hymns, with Orthodox songs sung in a heavy, somber, solemn tone, while Reform renditions target a younger audience through faster, hipper, cooler versions. And nowhere is that more evident than the 11th century composed song Adon alum, containing lyrics about God's greatness, all empowering existence, and ability to bring reassurance to people. Here's a traditional Orthodox version of Adon alum. Now here's a newer, hipper, reformed version.
1: I don't know, I don't know, I share my life, I share my life, and oh, you see me,
0: gives you a pretty good idea of just how far apart these two practicing styles of Judaism are, and you can kind of see how the younger sect is drawn toward the Reform style as what millennial or Gen Xer doesn't love a good a cappella alum. So, we've touched upon Orthodox and Reformed, and they're very different and distinct approaches. And then there's the third Jewish movement in practice, conservative, a go-between, a middleman, with strong ties to the Orthodox, probably less to the Reform, as in all my years of conservative Jewish practice, never saw a hopped-up guitar-playing kid doing his Pete towns and arm-swinging final note on the modernized, fast-paced staccato version of Adon The only instrument I ever saw on our conservative temple stage was a shofar, a ram's horn trumpet used by ancient Jews in religious ceremonies and battle. The blowing of the shofar, as it's called, occurs during Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the high holidays, of which my brothers and I when attending synagogue, always were. The only issue with waking and baking on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement and 24-hour fast, is that by noon, the munchies kicked in, and the tic-tac breath mints Zeta Zevi and the chicklets Bubba Sadie doled out all day long didn't make a dent in our hunger pains. Years later, when that movie The Hunger Games came out, I thought, what dreck, what a piece of shit. Not one scene about the fast on Yom Kippur... And incredibly, the guy who directed this piece of shit is Jewish. Puh. You can bet his mom and dad aren't too happy. And kind of interesting that in the old days, this shofar horn was sounded as a battle signal because the battle signal for Jews since they were proclaimed the chosen people has basically been, here comes another group of schmucks that wants to kill us. So run, Mordecai. Run, Moshe. Run, Mandelbaum. Our persecution kind of sounds like the Jewish version of Rudolf the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That to me always sounded kind of like a drag queen chorus line. On Dasher, on Prancer, on and on Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Blitzen. And then there's Rudolph. What kind of reindeer name is Rudolph? How the hell does Rudolph fit with Dancer, Prancer, and Blitzen? And back to when I was a young Jewish boy chick at Temple just hitting puberty, so everything was about sex... Hell, I thought the phrase, blowing the chauffeur, referred to a hammered bridesmaid giving head to the bridal shower limo driver. Oh my God, Miriam, look at Beverly. She's blowing the chauffeur. Oh, I think the chauffeur just shot his load as he screamed out, Tukia! Savarim! Finally ending with a robust, Teruah! And of course, as a Jewish boy, I have a Jewish mother. And my mom's a classic Jewish mother. She loves when I call her, but in her eyes, I never call enough. And when I do call, she doesn't make it easy. As every time she picks up the phone and hears my, Hi, Ma, she launches into, Why are you calling? What happened? Something wrong? Kids okay? You lose your job? Not getting enough to eat? You throw out your back? Actually, Ma, just calling to say hi. To which she replies, Well, why didn't you say so? You scare me to death when you call like that. And I say, call like what? How else can I call you? And she snaps, don't be a wise guy, smartass. Oh, the joys of a good Jewish son calling his Meshugan a Jewish mother. And it's amazing how she always assumes I've thrown out my back. She never asks about the backs of the women in the family. The Jewish bad back apparently is limited to the male side. And from what I've seen, heard, and been asked about my entire life, Jewish men must have the worst backs of any religion. Don't hear about Catholics with bad backs, which is amazing, as I figured that ailment would have been passed down over time after their guy Jesus, who was originally our guy Jesus, had to schlep that heavy-ass, back-busting wooden cross through the streets of Rome. And when he got nailed to it, that slut's position had to put a lot of pressure on his L4 and L5 vertebrae. And you know... Whenever I see a movie or a documentary reenactment of Jesus schlepping that cross through the streets, my first thought is, those fucking asshole Romans, followed immediately by, maybe the guy's not Jewish after all, There's no Jew I know could schlep a piece of wood that heavy. And while Jesus gets a lot of praise, worship, and adoration, Jesus never seems to get the credit he deserves for being the driving force behind Jews for Jesus. Sure, Turning the other cheek and turning water into wine are noteworthy. But convincing tons of hardcore Jews to shift parties and throw their support behind a Christian? Now that's a goddamn miracle. And I guess Jews for Jesus kind of makes sense. Because Jesus was a Jew. So it's not a huge leap of faith for a Jew to follow Jesus. But clearly it is for other religions. As you never see Krishna's for Christ, Muslims for Messiah, or Rastafarian's for Redeemer. And back to Jews and their ailing backs. God clearly gave Jews the intelligence gene, but boy, did God forget to put some good muscles in our lower backs. Or maybe God did put good muscles in our lower backs, but over time, Jewish men's backs have weakened from all the crazy davening, that twisting, shaking, knee-bending dance Jews do in temple. Or maybe it's from getting an aliyah, which is when a member of the Jewish congregation is called to the stage, or as we say in Hebrew, the bima and given the task of carrying that giant silver plated Torah scroll around the entire congregation so people can kiss it by placing a hand on it, then bringing their hands to their lips, or using their tzitzit, and not the fly, the stringy things hanging from their tallises to touch the Torah and then back to their lips. And while schlepping the Torah through the congregation isn't the same as Jesus carrying the cross to his own horrific death, they're both incredibly important journeys. And while I'm not sure if there were any consequences if Jesus dropped the cross along the way, I do know that if you drop the Torah, the implications are dire. The shame is enormous, and traditionally one needs to fast for 40 days if you drop the scrolls. Maybe that good-for-nothing director of The Hunger Games can redeem himself and make the next installment be about poor Saul Shapiro, who tripped over his Talus and dropped the Torah at Edith Israel synagogue, resulting in a 40-day fast. And the Torah-dropping offender has plenty of company in hunger, as anyone who witnesses the Torah tumble must also refrain from food and drink from sunrise to sunset for 40 days. Some Torahs are so heavy, only certain people are allowed to lift them, and people with bad backs makes the congregation nervous, which, as I alluded to, is just about every Jewish man over 30. You can especially feel the tension when there is an overzealous show-off Torah lifter or as we Jews call them, Testosterone Tevias, trying to prove what a starker they are. See, for the Jews, the Torah is the central and most important document of Judaism. Torah refers to the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, when you hear the names of the five books, it makes you wonder a bit. I mean, the first three of old-fashioned biblical-sounding names, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... And then Moses or some crazy scribe went rogue and came up with Numbers and Deuteronomy? The book Numbers is called Numbers because God ordered a counting of the people. Basically, the first census of the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, fine. Just don't see why they didn't come up with a better, cooler name more in line with the first three. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So they could have called Numbers numerous or censuses. And besides, the census part, the rest of the number story stories is that because of some Israelites' bad behavior, God punished them by making them travel 40 years in the desert before finally sitting in Israel, the promised land. Hmm, and I always assumed the promised land for Jews was Florida! And this oddball, non-biblical-sounding book, Numbers, reminds me of another bizarre naming oddity. Back in ancient Greece... You had what we think of as classic Greek names of famous philosophers, teachers, mathematicians, politicians. You know, like Socrates, Pericles, Euripides, Archimedes. And then you had that well-known author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer? Homer! Homer's a round-tripper in baseball. Homer's a name for a sports referee who always makes one-sided calls for the home team. Homer's a Simpson, for God's sake! You don't think Homer was pissed at his parents when he was getting his ass kicked every day by all the Athenian boys at the Lyceum? Homer's parents must have been from the same family lineage as the Trickle family. as mom and dad Trickle named their famous NASCAR driving son Richard, all the while having to know Richard was going to be called Dick for short, and therefore Richard Trickle would be called Dick Trickle his entire life. Ouch! And unfortunately... This is a name I can relate to a lot more now than I could as an invincible teenager, as it's the perfect description of my once youthful firehose urinary stream that is now not much more than a dick trickle. It's so depressing. I mean, last week I was playing golf with my 18-year-old son, and and is as customary and acceptable on a golf course after six or seven cold ones, you gotta go. So we found a small clearing in the woods just off the fairway where junior and me do some father-son male bonding, i peeing in nature, and whereas junior stream is knocking crows out of trees, my drip and dribble lands atop an ant pile, and the ant pile looks up at me and says, that's all you got. We've been hit with a crying toddler tears that had more goddamn force than that. Not really sure if that's how ants sound, but hey, I'm the same guy who, for my high school science project, wrapped tinfoil around the antenna of ants to see if they could get better reception. Anyway, while the book Numbers is a lame-ass title, Moses redeemed himself with the hip, beachy, SoCal laid-back title of the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. Although I gotta tell you, after reading it cover to cover, I was pretty disappointed again, because dude, not one reference to Jewish surfers. I figured, dude, Eronomy was a story about Israelite borders riding those killer waves when the Red Sea parted. But not one reference to Hanging Ten. Only a reference to the Big Ten. No, not the powerhouse football conference, the Ten Commandments. Anyway, back to Jews and the Torah. Never forget as a 10-year-old boy back in 1970 when this movie hit the theaters called Torah, Torah, Torah. I was so excited that Hollywood finally made a movie about our Moses and the first five books of the Bible. But as we just learn again and again throughout history, I was met with even more disappointment, as just as no Yom Kippur fasting in The Hunger Games and no Hebrew servers in Deuteronomy, Torah, Torah, Torah turned out to be a war film about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. It had nothing to do with the Torah. Literally, Bubkis Thing is, even if it wasn't about the Torah... Hollywood could have maximized its audience and catered a little bit more to the Jews. All they had to do was make one of the kamikaze pilots half-Jewish, you know, like Hideki Hirschberg, thus making the pilot not Japanese, but Jupanese. Anyway, back to Jews and their bad backs. The more likely reason for this debilitating ailment is not from carrying around the Torah or our crazy davening dance. It's from carrying around all that guilt our mothers put on us. And if it's not the guilt... It's got to be the extra weight we carry in our guts, putting unnecessary pressure on our lower backs as we're constantly being stuffed like pate-producing geese by our drill sergeant Meshugana mothers who seem to be training every Jewish boy for a career in competitive eating. I'm shocked a Jew hasn't won the Nathan's 4th of July hot dog eating contest 80 years in a row with the demanding Jewish mother standing behind the rotund little mensch barking orders at him through a chauffeur like an orthodox coxswain on a Jew crew team. And I joke about my mom. But you can never say she doesn't worry about her children 24-7. Never forget the time I went back to Cincinnati for my 20th high school reunion. I get in Friday, and after spending time with mom and dad, I headed out to the reunion. And it was a blast, so a few of us kept partying well after the bars closed all night till the sun came up. So I drive my drunk ass home because that's what we did back in the day. Parked the car and quietly tiptoed into the house. Walk through the kitchen, living room, down the hall to the bedrooms, and I quietly passed my folks' bedroom on the left, and just as I got to my bedroom door, I heard my mom say, Oh, thank God, Bobby, he's home. Here I am, nearly 40 years old, been away from home for 20 years, and my mom still waits up for me. And to top it off, she comes into my room, sits on the bed, gives me a kiss on my forehead and says, i all night without a car, Eh, whatever, at least you're home safe. You must be starving. What can I get you? I made kugel. I can warm up a knish. Or I got your favorite, kreplach. And this 50-50 mental makeup of every Jewish mother, worry and feeding, no matter the situation, no matter the event, a Jewish mother's life is to feed you. During my sophomore year of college, for a bet, I shaved my head. A few days later, one of my brothers was turning 30, so I drove home to surprise him. It's fairly late, dark out, cold, wintry February night, so I was wearing a beanie to keep my dome warm. I pulled into the driveway, grabbed my bags, and headed in to surprise Mom and Dad. After we hugged, I took off my cap, and Mom shrieked, Oh my God, Bobby, he shaved his goddamn head! And even after that jarring visual shock, in less than a second, she said, Hey, you can tell me about the concentration camp haircut later, Meshugana. You must be starving. What can I get you? So think about that. I show up unannounced with a shaved head that triggers an Auschwitz analogy, and in less than a heartbeat, that's over with, and it's all about feeding her bubbla? And I was lucky, because my mom was a great cook, and she was also a great bake. Yeah, that's what you call a Jewish woman who can bake cakes, pies, and cookies. You call them a great bake, not a great baker. Now, my wife's mom, who is not Jewish, is not a great cook or a great bake. This is a woman who never met a can she didn't like. Her recipe box has one card in it that reads, Get Can, Open Can, Serve. And God love my mom, but she isn't what I would call the most positive person. Even her blood type is B-negative. And you know how some people see the glass half full, some people see the glass half empty? My mom sees the glass with lipstick smudges and dishwasher spots on them. A few months ago, she came out to visit me, so I picked her up at the airport, and as one is wont to do in normal conversation after picking someone up at the airport, asked, How was your flight, Ma? To which she replied, Eh, it landed. Whoop-de-doo. And I'll never forget, a few years ago, Mom turned 90 and we had an amazing party at my older brother's house. Really nice event. Afterwards, I'm driving Mom back to her place and going on about how great the party was. What a beautiful night. And she says, eh, the meat had no taste. You think your sister-in-law could use salt once in her life? So I tried to change the subject and said, you know, Ma, I really like the purse Aunt Nancy got you. To which she snapped, who needs a goddamn purse? It's so goddamn big. Where am I going? Camping? So I try again and say, well, you sure got a lot of nice other great gifts. And she barks. Yeah, and now i got to write a 100 goddamn thank you cards. Who needs to gifts at my age? You want to give me a gift? Don't get me a gift. And while birthday parties are no picnic, going out to eat with my mom is a nightmare. No matter what she gets, it's never as good as what other people ordered. She always complains. Why did I order that? Should have got what you got. And the PTSD she causes waiters and waitresses? The soup isn't hot enough. The toast isn't dry enough. The bacon isn't crisp enough. My mom holds the modern record for consecutive meals sent back at 173. You know how McDonald's is famous for the happy meal? Eating out with my mom is the unhappy meal. And mom's kvetching isn't limited to meals. On one of my visits home, mom wanted to get her car wash. But before we get to the car wash, she makes me stop to get gas because we only have seven-eighths of a tank which would last my mom three or four years with the amount she drives from her apartment to the grocery store, beauty shop, and weekly bridge game, which is unfortunately like playing keyboard with the Grateful Dead, as it's just a matter of time before one of the four players passes away and to find a fourth requires a full-page ad in The Israelite as there aren't many 96-year-old bridge masters around. But we'd better fill up, because God forbid mom gets the urge to drive to Miami and only has enough gas in the tank to get to Tallahassee, as a Jew residing in Florida's panhandle is not going to cut it. It's Miami, Boca, or Bust. And ever the frugal depression-era child, mom reminds me that with every fill-up, you get a free car wash. At this rate, mom must get 10 to 12 car washes a week. I don't know what the fear is of running out of gas for older people, but I know it's going to happen to me when I turn 80, so I fill her up, and even at $4 a gallon, the cost of the fill-up is like a buck thirty-eight, which I pay for, at which point mom flips out telling me to save my money as she reaches into her purse and gives me the exact amount including the $0.38 cents in change as older people still carry around exact change. So, I reluctantly pocket the buck 38, and we drive to the car wash. Go through the wash, get out, and wait while the workers vacuum and clean the inside of her car. The guys finish, wave this over, and as we get in, I secretly hand the guy a $5 tip because if my mom saw that, oi, vault, that would be a nightmare. Once we're in the car, my crackerjack detective mom, who never misses a thing, says, Oh, you gave the guy a tip? For cleaning my car? Money must grow on trees where you live, big macher. Well, I ignore the jab and start to pull out of the car wash when mom blurts out, Oy ve! the schmuck stole my cucumber! Which is an odd and worrisome sentence, as I had no idea what the hell it meant. Honestly, I was a tad concerned my mom was losing it but she kept going on. Son of a bitch! Who in their right minds steals a goddamn cucumber? Well, now that she'd brought up a mysterious stolen cucumber twice, I thought I had to say something, so I said, They stole your cucumber? What? Your hearing's all of a sudden as bad as your father's? Where's the cucumber, Ma? Don't patronize me! It was on the front seat, and now I'm worried about my umbrella in the trunk because they probably stole that too. Stop the car and check the trunk! Now? Can't we wait till we get home? stops the goddamn car. So I pull over, jump out, open the trunk, no umbrella. This isn't good. Not because the umbrella isn't there, but because I got to deliver the bad news to mom, who appears to have more pent-up anger than Howard Beale, the news anchor character in the movie Network. So I close the trunk, look to the heavens for strength, jump back in the car, shake my head, and say, nope. To which my mom, a.k.a. Howard Beale, goes ballistic. Those goddamn good-for-nothing car washes turn around so we can file a complaint. Well, that was the last straw that broke the camel's back, or in this case, made another Jewish man's back very sore. They summoned up every ounce of strength because good Jewish boys never disagree with their mothers and said, Ma, we're not filling out a complaint for an allegedly stolen cucumber and umbrella. I'll run to the store and get you new ones. To which she replied, "Oi." Here we go again, Mr. Big Shot, who has a massive money tree the size of a redwood in his backyard. So, I clam up, drive us home, park the car, get out, go around, open the door, and help Mom out. And as I extract her from the seat, I look down, and she'd unknowingly been sitting on the damn cucumber. So I lean in, grab the cuke, and say, Guess what, Ma? It was right under your keister the whole time. And she grabs it from my hand and says, Those bastards must have snuck it in the crack of the seat when they vacuumed. That's the last time I get my car washed at that forcock place. And as you can probably imagine, when we walked into her apartment, there on the hallway table was her umbrella. Hey, well, what do you know, Ma? Here's your stolen umbrella. Give me that, as she grabbed it from me. Those thieves may not have stolen my umbrella, but I bet they stole something else from my trunk. Well, after that exhausting Jewish CSI episode, I laid down for a nap. Later that evening, the rest of the family comes over and Mom made her famous fried chicken, twice-baked potatoes, and a big salad. As I began to eat my salad, I noticed a few cucumber slices on the end of my fork and hesitated. What, you're not hungry now? Actually, I'm starving. Then eat, for God's sake! Hey, Ma, is this the same cucumber you were sitting on in the car today? Sitting on a cucumber? What are you, my sugar? Why would I sit on a goddamn cucumber? You've been nipping on the Mogan David again? And for those of you not familiar with Mogan David, it's like drinking artificially sweetened turpentine. One thing's for sure, you'll never see Mogan David or Manischewitz getting 93 points in Wine Spectator. And oh, the irony. Jews, not great winemakers, but oi, what great winers. So... Like a good Jewish son, I listened to my mom and ate the freshly vacuumed cucumbers, albeit more tentatively than normal, as my brother leaned over and whispered, Heard mom sat on a cucumber again. To which I replied, This is a regular occurrence? Couple times a month, easy, he says. So to get that taste and image out of my head, I grabbed the last breast of chicken, as I see one drumstick left on the platter, and no mom loves her drumsticks, so I'm not reaching for that one. And in typical fetching fashion... Her next comment is, everyone gets a breast but me? The schmuck who labored endlessly in the kitchen for hours preparing his feast for my ungrateful family? Ma, you always take the drumsticks. We know you love the drumsticks, so we leave you the drumsticks. If you'd rather have a breast, take mine. Oh, so now you offer me a breast? Too late, Bobby. I hope all you enjoy your big, juicy and margaret breasts while I endure a tremendous struggling, nibbling and nipping my way along the stick of meat that with one slip-up could lodge a bone short in my throat and kill me, Kinahora. But forget about me. Enjoy. Eat. And who's kidding who? You ever see a Jewish mother pick at a drumstick, wing, or a rib? They savor it. They love it. Their fingers like eagle talons, calloused, powerful, yet delicate, able to microscopically clean a bone like an archaeologist uncovering a rare species of Homo erectus. And their teeth! They're like piranhas, razor sharp incisors able to shred down to the bone in seconds. A Jewish mother falls out of a boat in the Amazon? The piranhas got no chance. Anyway, so after a week visiting my folks, I have to eat my final breakfast wearing sweatpants as I've gained at least 15 pounds and can't squeeze into my jeans. Finish, gather my bags and start the goodbye process, which for a Jew is longer than the last two minutes of an NFL football game. And every time I leave, mom always comments on how I just got there. Can't believe you're already leaving. Where did the time go? So I bend down to give my mom a hug, having to stoop down quite a distance as mom, who was never a giant in her heyday, probably five-two at best, now at age 97 has shrunk to a diminutive 4'8". After the hug, she hands me a card with a check for my birthday. And she always says the same thing about my birthday checks, whether she sends it in the mail or hands it to me in person. Now don't spend it on groceries. Buy yourself something. You sure, Ma? Because I could really use some TP, Drano, and Twizzlers. Ah, don't be a wise-ass putz, she retorts. By the way, your brother showed me a video the other day. Really? Of what? Of a no-good son commiserating over his unlit Christmas tree? Oh, you thought that was real, Ma. It was a joke. I was making light of a Jew that lost his way during Hanukkah for this year's Purim Festival. She didn't find my explanation too funny as she snapped, A Jew joking about Hanukkah with a Christmas tree, no less. What are you going to do next, Schmendrek? Spoof Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas and make how the schmucks to Hanukkah? Listen, schmuck, when your father and I saw that, forgot the video, oy, the aggravation, the pain. It was like you were rubbing salt in a wound. In fact, it was so painful, it was more than salt. It felt like you were rubbing big grains of kosher salt in my ripped open heart. What's your next film going to be, Spielberg? Torah, 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 where you drop the Torah for a big hoo laugh. Or why not branch out the TV and make Orthodox, a Jewish sitcom about orthopedic surgeons who only operate on Shabbos? And to think, I waited up for you all night till you get home. Oi, Bobby, where did we go wrong? Sorry, Ma. Oh, sorry, sorry, shmari. Oh, well, it schmaltz under the bridge. Here, as she hands me a large sack. I made you seven tongue and chopped liver sandwiches for the flight. Maybe with your love of Christmas trees, I should have slathered the hollow with mayonnaise instead of golden spicy mustard? Seven tongue and chopped liver sandwiches? It's a four-hour flight, Ma. Oh, my God, you're right, she bemoaned. You'll need more than that to eat. How about I throw in a few well-vacuumed cucumbers? Well, thanks for listening to Berg's Brain, and hope you enjoyed the ride. Special thanks to my close friend, musical director, guitar legend, and personal moyle, Jeff Peapod Mordecai Miller. Thanks to the incredibly talented Bergs Brain graphic designer, Claire Skipperort. And if you like Bergs Brain, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Check out our website at bergsbrain.buzzsprout.com. If you want to touch base, email me at bergsbrainpod at gmail.com. Peapod, how about unveiling your new backup doo-wop singers? or as we say in Brooklyn, your Jew-wop singers, the alley blowing chauffeurs, and have them sing us out on your raucous and rave-reformed rendition of Adon Take it away, Peapod Adon Alam, Hashem
1: Alam,